Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church Podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. It is so good to see y'all. I've spoken to a few empty rooms since this whole thing has started, and believe me, it is so much uh, of a blessing to see your smiling faces. So good to see you here. Um, We're in a series called Summer of Love 2, and we've been talking since week one about the fact that um, there's some confusion in our culture uh, about love, and that's a reasonable thing because we sort of use the word love as a Swiss Army knife word. It means a lot of different things, like a Swiss Army knife does all the different tasks. The word love sort of does all the different tasks for us in talking about the different feelings that we experience in relationships. Now, what we said before is that at least when it comes to the scripture, at least when it comes to the New Testament, um, we don't have that confusion because in the Greek language, you've got to be real specific. There are different words for different kinds of love. So maybe in the English language, I might say, I love my wife and kids, and then I might also say, I love Oreo cookies. And the Lord knows I love Oreo cookies. I had some last night. It's a wonderful thing. But, um, but for in the Greek language, we might have to get a little bit more particular. There's five different words we've introduced to you since the beginning of this series, right? So one is epithemia, which means red hot passion or lust. Eros means sexual desire. Storge means just the love of humankind. Like you love other people, you have warm feelings in your heart toward other people. Um, Philia or phileo, which means the love of deep friendships. So maybe somebody that you've known for a long time, you just know that connection that you have with that person is special. When you spend time with them, it feels feels good. You have those feelings. And we said that generally speaking in our culture, when somebody says love, when they use that word, they're talking about something on this side of the screen. And there's nothing wrong with that. There is, as we said, a feeling kind of love. That's true. But in week one, we said, but there's also another kind of love. There's a doing kind of love. In the New Testament, um, it's the word agape, which is a special word that means God's love for us or the kind of love that God loves us with. And we said that unlike a feeling kind of love, it's a doing kind of love. It's a behavior. It's a lifestyle. So while this over here is how love feels, this over here is how love love behaves. And there's a tall order in scripture, and I actually read it in every wedding that I do, that says that Jesus has told us that we are to love others as he's loved us. So we are called to agape, 
others in our lives. And especially in the series, we've been talking about how agape should function in a marriage. Now, if you're wondering, well, you know, where am I at? How am I doing in this area of agape? The good news is we've got this fabulous litmus test in scripture from the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. And this is a passage that you've heard us talk about throughout this entire series, where Paul says, love is patient and kind. It's not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It doesn't demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of when it's been wrong. It doesn't rejoice about injustice, but it rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Uh, Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. So this is a special kind of love, a doing kind of love, and it's the kind of love that God has shown us, and it's the kind of love that God has commanded us to love others with. So for the first few weeks, we've been taking this sort of abstract, zoomed out, big picture kind of treatment of love. This week, I'm going to go completely in a different direction, and we're going to go fiercely practical with this series, because we're going to talk about how does love operate under pressure? If you've been married for any length of time, you understand that there is... Uh, there's a different dynamic in play in your marriage if things are neutral, if things are going in a good, uh, you know, if it's a good day, if there are no triggers, if nothing is upsetting you, nothing is upsetting your spouse, and you don't have any major stresses coming on top of you, that things can be very good. But then when things do get triggered, it can be very bad. I'll hear this from couples in my office all the time. They'll say, Jonathan, when it is good, it's amazing. And they would probably say to me, you know what, that agape definition that you just read, when, when there aren't any triggers, when we're not dealing with conflict, that's pretty much how it is. I mean, that's, that's kind of like what our love looks like. But then they'll say, Jonathan, while it is true that when it's good, it's amazing, when it's bad, it's unlivable, it's terrible, it's really, really bad. And it's almost the opposite of what you just read. And it's kind of a roller coaster. We hit really high highs, but then we hit really low lows. If that's been your experience in your relationship, or if you know somebody who's going through that experience in your relationship, this talk is completely for you. Um, If if you're not exactly sure what you're going to do with this talk right now, at least take some notes and keep it in your hip pocket. I promise at some point in your life, this is going to be relevant. So here's what I'm going to do. I've never done this before in 10 years. I've been you know, teaching here at New Spring for 13 years, 10 years on staff. Um, I've been, uh, you know, doing marriage coaching, marriage counseling. I have never in my entire time here, tried to pack just one talk with as many powerful keys for dealing with conflict as I possibly could. I thought about in the 10 years what I've worked with couples on dealing with conflict, how can I cram it into one single talk? Now, I may regret it. You may look at me and go, wow, this is like drinking from a fire hydrant, but this is the best thing I know to do. I'm gonna give you the best kind of insight I would give you if you came in to see me in my office. This is for what to do to manage conflict. And I'm gonna give you seven keys to loving well under pressure. And that probably makes you nervous. I get it. When a pastor says they have seven of anything, it stresses me out too. I'm thinking I may not actually get lunch today, you know? But seriously, we're gonna move fast. I'm going to talk fast. Hopefully you'll listen fast. Hopefully this is going to be a blessing and a help to you. This wouldn't be a bad one to take notes. We've got the thing on the app where you can take notes. Ladies, a pencil, pen, mascara, whatever you got in your purse, right? You just take that out. Not on your phone, but on paper, right? I just realized how that sounded. Okay, seven ways to love well under pressure. Here's the first one. The first one is this. When you deal with pressure in a relationship, when conflict starts, when there's some sort of trigger that creates some sort of conflict in the relationship, the first thing you need to do is mentally, you need to slow down. Mentally, you need to slow down. This is the most practical thing I can tell you for what to do in the moment. 
is to make a key decision that I'm not going to react fast. I'm going to be a slow reactor. Whatever it takes, I'm going to pump the brakes here. Now look at what the scripture says. The scripture says that a fool is quick-tempered, but a wise person stays calm when insulted. So fast, a fool is fast. Now, by the way, you, I've just introduced you to the villain and the hero in Proverbs. So if you're reading through uh, the book of Proverbs, and I highly encourage you to do it. It's packed full of relational wisdom. As a matter of fact, because it is, we're going to stay in Proverbs the whole time today. Um, but it is packed full of relational wisdom. I have a lot of friends who read a chapter in Proverbs for every day of the month because it almost works out perfectly throughout the year. Um, but the villain in Proverbs is the fool. The fool is the person who makes poor choices and ends up with a poor future. A wise person is a person who makes good choices and ends up with a good future. And so he says, a, a foolish person is just really fast to react. They're quick-tempered. And this is a theme, right? And I only have a few scriptures here, but it's, it's all through the book of Proverbs. Short-tempered people do foolish things and schemers are hated. Whoever is patient, whoever takes a while to react has great understanding, but one who is quick-tempered, so again, reacts fast, displays folly. Now, this is a very kind way of the scripture saying that a person who reacts quickly broadcasts stupidity. That's really what the scripture is saying. They tend to broadcast their stupidity, which I totally get. I've had moments, especially in the early years of our relationship, where I would get so upset with Wendy, and I, you know, I would, I would bark something out the door at her and realize our neighbors were listening to me, and I'm thinking, not, I'm not just stupid, I'm broadcasting my stupidity to the world. Why am I doing this? Well, the reason I was doing it is I was letting things happen too fast. And there's a brain science reason for this that I could bore you with. Let me just give you the bottom line of it. The fastest part of your brain is also the least values consistent part of your brain. And it's the part of your brain that doesn't regulate impulse as well. And it's the part of your brain that's going to sort of give out raw emotion. And when we get triggered into a fight and we go into fight or flight mode, which by the way, happens just as much in a marital fight as it does if you were driving down a road and somebody veered into your lane and you thought you were getting ready to get in an accident, your body gets all charged up, right? When that happens, this very fast part of your brain commandeers it and suddenly you're spouting raw emotion, you're doing things and saying things that just that's not consistent with your character, so much so that people will come in my office and they'll say, I don't know why I said that, that's not me, I certainly don't feel that way, I don't know why I did that, and I, I totally believe them. Because this part of us that reacts fast is not really consistent with who we are. So if we don't wanna create messes that we're gonna have to go clean up later, and I've done that many times, we need to slow down. Now why is this so important? I'm gonna tell you a quick story, and I apologize if you have heard this from me before. I've told this before a couple years ago, but um, a little while ago, this has been a few years ago now, my, my wife and I had sold a house, we're moving to another house, and uh, we needed to move some stuff around in the attic. So I got out my ladder, and I'm climbing up in the garage, way up to the top to get to the access point. Now, I should tell you, I hate getting up on ladders. I'm kind of afraid of heights. And so uh, I, I avoid it whenever I can, but in this moment, I gotta climb up the ladder, and I'm moving this access panel over. And as I do, this brown and green thing drops onto me and starts to coil around my neck and my shoulder, right? Now, for those of you who like snakes, I don't mean to offend, but I have this thing about the only good snake is a dead snake. Like I've sort of held that as a spiritual conviction for a long time. And 
So I'm thinking to myself, and, and I'm thinking, I don't know whether this thing is poisonous or not, and I'm thinking that the likelihood that I might die is very high right now. So I'm thinking, okay, what am I going to do? So I'm up at the top of this ladder, and I'm thinking to myself, if I were to jump off this ladder and land on my shoulder, then I might, because the thing was wrapped around my shoulder, I thought, I'll stun it, and maybe I'll have time to get away. So I'm at the top of this ladder, I've got one leg already off the ladder and I'm getting ready to lunge off of it when I get a slightly better look at this thing and realize that what has wrapped around me is a garden hose. (laughs) And I think to myself, that would be a fun one to explain to Wendy. Look, the reason that I broke my shoulder and my collarbone is I was attacked by a garden hose. And you know, you just have to, you have to take care of business, whatever you have to do to make that. But, but it's a perfect example of the fact that the faster we think, the fuzzier we think, right? And this is why game shows work, right? We give somebody a relatively complex task and then what do we do? We put a timer on it because the faster they have to do it, the more fun ensues, the more difficult it is for them and the more fun it is to watch. But if they were to take that timer away and just give them an unlimited amount of time to do it, it would be boring and nobody would watch it. But think about the complexity. I mean, that's complex, right? A game show, whatever they ask you to do. But think about the complexity of your relationship and the feelings that each of you have and where, you come to, uh, where you're coming to this relationship from. There's a lot of complexity there. So you need even more time. So m- my guarantee to you is things will get better if you pump the brakes, if you just slow down and make a decision that I'm not gonna react until I have time to process this. By the way, it's okay to tell your spouse sometimes, I don't have an answer for you yet, I just need to think it through. I need to process it. And everybody will win if you take some time. All right, number two. Number two is stop talking and listen. I know that sounds mean. I know that sounds overly direct. But I tell you, this thing will revolutionize your communication. You know one of the first things they have to teach therapists to do? Right? So a person wants to train to be a counselor. They want to, you know, they go and they get their master's degree to be a counselor or therapist. You know what the first thing they have to teach them to do in clinicals? Stop talking and listen. And many of these people already think they're a good listener. They already think they're really good at hearing people out. But the truth is, most of us are far poorer listeners than we think we are. We do a lot of talking and not a whole lot of listening. And there's a problem with that, and that is that, unfortunately, the time that, the, that all we're hearing is the sound of our own voice isn't actually building any understanding. We only build understanding when we listen. A lot of times I find that people think that forward movement in the relationship is gonna come from something that they say. But I promise you, I will guarantee you this, forward movement in a relationship will almost never come from something you say. It will almost always come from something that you hear. Stop talking and listen. Look at what the scripture says. Fools find no pleasure in understanding. They don't celebrate understanding. What they do celebrate is airing their own opinions. So Proverbs says, a foolish person loves to talk, doesn't particularly like to listen. And this is true as well, and this is in other sections of Proverbs, but one of the things that we learn about a foolish person is if they do listen, they listen to build a case. If they listen, they listen as an attempt to try to, to manipulate the situation. Maybe they'll hear something that will allow them to get where they wanna go, but still, it's never as an open-minded exercise to understand where the other person is coming from. Scripture says, spouting off before listening to the facts is both shameful and foolish. So there is an order of operations. We need to listen first, and then we can talk. Now, 
one of the reasons why this is important is because this relates to arguing, and arguing is, so conflict in marriage just means we don't see eye to eye. Arguing is where it goes for a lot of us. We go from, we don't see eye to eye to suddenly we're in an argument, and really, it becomes sort of the grown-up version of the, you know, two kids in the back seat, yahan, uh, yahan, uh, yahan. I mean, it sounds a little more grown-up when we do it, but it's basically the same thing. You have two people who are more or less telling each other that they're wrong, and neither of them wants to hear it, right? Um, So I want to set you free in the name of Jesus when it comes to arguing, just by letting you know that arguing is always, always, always a waste of time. 100% it's a waste of time, and I can prove it to you. There's a theory that we have in psychology called confirmation bias, and it's it's a theory about how we handle our beliefs. I have some beliefs that I... I hold with an open palm. I, I'm, I'm flexible about them. I, you know, when I was in my early 20s, I worked in the automotive um, industry and the sort of mechanical side of it, and I worked with Hondas. And at the time, I really came to believe that Hondas were the best car on the road. I guess I, I, guess I still kind of believe that, but I don't know. I don't even drive one anymore, and you could probably bring me evidence that it wasn't true, and I might change my mind. I, I'm not super invested in that. I sort of hold that belief with an open palm. There are other beliefs that I hold with a closed fist, like, for instance, that my wife is a good woman. I firmly hold that belief. I'm highly invested in that belief. And here's what confirmation bias says. Confirmation bias says, once I come to firmly hold a belief, my brain, and by the way, this doesn't happen intentionally. This just happens automatically. My brain is going to want to pay attention to things that confirm my belief, and my brain is going to want to ignore or reject information that disconfirms my belief. Happens automatically. By the way, this is why people who are on polar ends of the political spectrum want to listen to different news stations. Is because we don't want to hear things that might disconfirm what we believe. That's very uncomfortable. We now know that it lights up the pain centers of the brain to hear information that disconfirms something that we firmly believe. So here's what happens. You have a husband and a wife, and they both firmly believe different things. Husband says, it happened on a Tuesday, and she says, no, it happened on a Thursday. Right? And she says, you always do this. And he says, I don't ever do that, right? And so now there's this difference of opinion. So now what are they going to do? Well, they're going to bring all this evidence. Well, don't you remember when you did that last time? I remember when you did that a week ago. And we start trying to give them evidence. And surprise, surprise, it's like it totally goes over their heads. Either that or they get angry at us. And they start feeding us evidence for their point of view. And you have two people that are talking and nobody is listening. See, listening instead of talking is a way of overriding this, of saying, I know that my default is to ignore something unless it confirms, unless it feeds the machine, unless it confirms what I already want to believe. But I'm going to listen because I know that that's not healthy. I know it's not healthy for me to basically block anything that I don't want to hear. So I'm going to make a choice to listen instead of talk to try to understand where the other person is coming from. That's what the Bible tells us that a wise person does. Okay, number three. Number three is seek common ground. And all antenna up on this one because this is the most important of the seven. If you only take one thing home, today I want you to take this home, that the most important thing you can do in a conflict is to seek common ground. The fact that you're in a conflict is because there is an issue or a thing or a concern or a problem on which you don't have common ground. And so now what you're trying to do, you're stuck in this fight to be right, to try to get one person to win and the other person is gonna lose. By the way, that never works out, right? You don't ever want a situation in your marriage where one person is in the engineering car of that train and the other person is hanging off the back end of the caboose with their heels digging on the railroad railroad ties as it goes down the tracks. You don't want that. You need two people who have ownership over the same thing. So in order to do that, we've got to dig underneath the thing that we don't agree about to get to something that we do agree about so that we can work backwards. 
Let me give you an example. I know what I just told you is very abstract. Let me give you a, a straightforward example of what I mean by that. And if you've heard this story before, I apologize. I've told this now for 10 years uh, in New Spring. But not too long after I got here, I turned 30 and my body unaccountably turned against me. I, I don't know whether your experience was like this or not, but I had weighed the same since I was in college. <clears throat> and I, uh, suddenly I turned 30 and I immediately put on 20 pounds. This happened like overnight. It was just, there it is, 20, 20 extra pounds in the mirror. And I'm like, well, how did this happen? And I'm convinced as I'm looking at that, I'm thinking I'm obviously you know, very sick. I mean, I have some sort of latent undiagnosed illness that's caused this. I go to my doctor and I tell her, you got to figure out what's wrong, you know? And she humors me. She runs a bunch of tests, a blood panel and thyroid panel and all that stuff. And uh, she comes back in to give me the results. And she knows she can kid me. I have a pretty good sense of humor. And she said, you know, Jonathan, uh, you're not sick. I think you're, you know, you're just lazy. I, I, I think that if you, if you want to lose weight, you're going to have to diet and exercise and, and you know, diet and, 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 and exercise at the same time. <laughs> no, I, I thought, well, you know, I'll try one of those. And I decided to try exercise because then I could still have Oreos and Coca-Cola. If you've never had them together, it's, just, it's like a spiritual experience. But um, <laughs> I, uh, I thought I can still eat whatever I want, but I can try to exercise. We lived in Derby at the time. I'd see people running up and down the sidewalks. Oh, I can do that. Never run before, but why not, you know? I go out and I get the running clothes, the outfit, you know. I get the app for my phone where the GPS tracks your runs. And then because I don't look like a goober enough as it is, I went out and got a holster for, where I could put my phone in my, you know, my arm when I'm running. And uh, nobody warned me in advance about these apps. But it turns out they're just brutal for your self-esteem. The first time you go out and you run, you get these like, ribbons and badges, like all these awards. Like I felt like I was at an award ceremony. My app's like celebrating the awesomeness that is me. You ran further than ever before. You ran faster than ever before. Yeah, I never run before, you know? <laughs> but now I know these ribbons exist and I have to have them. Like it's a matter of personal pride. The best competition's with yourself, of course. So, you know, it's the summertime and Wendy would put the girls to bed and as she was putting the girls to bed, I would go out and I would, I would run and I would track my run and I would have to beat the previous night's records. Didn't matter whether I almost killed myself doing it, I had to beat the previous night's records. First couple nights I come in, I tell Wendy, hey, I had a good run, I ran two miles, I ran three miles and Wendy would say, that's great, I'm so glad you're enjoying it, I'm glad you're getting out and the, you know, the fresh air and you're you know, getting healthier, that's awesome, you know? So I just kept going night after night, kept beating the records, beating the records. One night, I surprised myself with how great I was. I ran a 6.8 mile run. They were all barely over 10 minute miles. To a marathon runner, that's nothing. To me, it was, it was a big deal. And I thought that whole last mile as I was running, I was thinking about how I was gonna tell Wendy and she was gonna be so excited that I ran such a long distance, you know? And so I come in the house. She's already done putting the girls to bed. They were super little at the time. And she's sitting on the couch there. And I, I come in the door and I tell her all the stats. I just ran 6.8 miles and I go through the whole thing. And uh, I'm, I'm waiting for her to throw confetti in the air and throw her arms around my neck, big party, all, you know. And she looks at me and she says, I'm not impressed by that. And I'm like, say what? She said, I'm not impressed by that. You come in here spouting numbers like I'm supposed to throw you a party. 6.8 miles is way too much for you. You should be running like two or three miles. I don't, know, I don't know what you want from me. I'm not impressed. Well, now not only am I 
mad because of what she said. Now I think she wants to be my mom. She's telling me I, I'm only supposed to run two or three miles. Like, I am an adult. I can decide how far I want to run. By the way, this is another thing I can set you free of in the name of Jesus. Guys in the room, I've now worked with couples for 10 years. I have now become completely convinced that no wife wants to be her husband's mom. So you can just put that one to bed in case that ever comes up. Um, but, but seriously though, I'm thinking she's trying to run my life. She's trying to tell me how far I can and can't run. I'm not going to put up with that. And I go downstairs to take a shower. I'm trying to, you know, I'm, I'm trying to cool off, but I'm still sort of like playing this through in my head. And I'm thinking about, and as a marriage counselor, I have a bookshelf full of marriage books. I'm going to get my copy of Love and Respect. And I'm going to show her that Dr. Egrick says she's supposed to respect my drive to achieve. I can show it to her in black and white how wrong she is. And I'm, you know, all, all this playing through in my head. And then I remember something, even all the way back, this is 10 years ago, basically. Even back then, we were already teaching couples this one key. And still, after all these years, this is still the main key that we teach couples. That underneath every unreasonable reaction is a reasonable pain or fear. Always, 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 without exception, underneath every unreasonable reaction is a reasonable pain or fear. If you're in this room and you're married, you married an unreasonable person. And so did they, right? That's all you had to choose from. That was the pool, right? Sometimes they're going to be unreasonable. But underneath the unreasonableness, there's a reasonable pain or fear. And so I thought to myself, did she give me any indication of what the pain or fear was underneath this? And I remember that she said it was too much for me. I go upstairs and I ask her, I say, Wendy, were you worried something bad was going to happen to me? You worried I was going to get hurt or something? And suddenly she's got a tear coming down the side of her face. And she says, that's exactly what I'm worried about. She said, I'm so glad you're getting healthy. I'm so glad you're running. But you're, she's like, I know you. You've probably had three, two liters of Coca-Cola today. She's like, you, you're, 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 your diet is still very unhealthy. She's like, you were out there in a heat index of 110. It was mid-August. She's like, you're out there for a heat index of 110. You're gone for over an hour. I don't know when you're coming back. She's like, you come in here, you, and you didn't look pale. You looked green. She's like, you came in that door, and you looked green. And she's like, I have this picture in my, in my head of you lying face down on a sidewalk somewhere in an ambulance crew having to come and scrape you up and take you to the hospital and you're too good of a husband and father I don't want to lose you what's interesting is what sounded like a huge insult on the front end turned out to be a pretty big compliment on the back end and I'll tell you something else I want to talk to you about how this is so powerful if we can get underneath the thing that we don't agree about and we can find something that we do have common ground on how it puts us on the same side with the other person see the thing about it is Wendy and I didn't have common ground on whether 6.8 miles was too much to run here's where we did once I knew where she was coming from I have the common ground of I know what it's like to not want somebody to take foolish risks with their health I know what it's like to not want to lose somebody that matters to me. I, I know what it's like to not know where somebody is because I expected them to already be home and hope that everything is okay. Suddenly, I'm on her side, and it's not just me. I've told this story all over the country, and I'll tell it to a room of folks like you, and I'll say that Wendy said, I'm not impressed by that, and I'll get what I got from you guys, a room full of perplexed looks, a room full of people like, and, and admit it, you were on my side, weren't you? You're like, why would she say something like that to you? But you know what happens? I tell the end of the story and I say, she says, you're too good of a husband and father and I don't want to lose you. And what I always get is I get hundreds of light bulbs coming on across the room, hundreds of aha moments. And suddenly you're on her side. See, that's the way this works. The power is in finding out what you do have in common under what you don't have in common. And suddenly what you don't have in common becomes irrelevant. The 6.8 miles is irrelevant. What was important is she needed to know that I cared that she didn't want to lose me. And suddenly we were okay. 
That's why I'm saying this is so powerful. And I want to specifically talk to guys in the room for just a second. Guys, pay attention to this because I think this will help you. So years ago, my dad would take me and my brother Jared. Stephen wasn't born yet. He would take me and my brother Jared to the park around the corner and we'd play football. I know what you're thinking. Three people, how do three people play football? Well, my dad uh, doesn't have an ACL in one of his knees, so he couldn't run. So he was the quarterback for both teams. I'm sure it was some sort of profound conflict of interest. We didn't understand at the time. We just let him be the quarterback for both teams. We would run patterns and keep score and all that. I had a problem back then, and even as I got older and tried to play football with friends in college and, um, and with church groups and stuff over the, I still have the same problem. And that is I just get so enthusiastic as I've almost caught the ball. The ball is like basically there and it's brushing my hands and I know I've caught it and I immediately turn and run for the end zone and the ball ends up right where I thought I caught it. And my, I was telling my dad that I was going to talk about this. And he said, you know, Jonathan, even in the pros, that'll happen sometimes. And you'll hear the commentator say he started running before he caught the ball. Now, guys, I'm going to help you understand the most powerful thing you can do to make yourself indispensable to your wife. God gave you a desire to fix what's broken for your family. It's part of being a provider and protector. It's something that's instilled in you that you want to make things right if something is wrong. So your wife brings you a problem or an issue or a challenge, and your first instinct is to run for the end zone and fix the problem, whatever it takes. You're going to give her a bulleted five-point plan for what she needs to do to fix this and make it better. And when she doesn't respond well, you, you don't understand what she did wrong. And now you're, you're getting frustrated because she's not responding the way you feel like she's supposed to respond. But 90% of the time, the reason is because you started running for the end zone before you caught the ball. See, I needed to catch the ball that Wendy didn't want to lose me. Once I really had that and I, was, I firmly had it, then we could actually make some progress. We could go somewhere with it. Some of you in this room, you feel like you never make progress. You have a fight, but you never make progress. Probably it's because you haven't really caught the ball yet. You've got to really, guys, let me tell you something. Your wife is hungry for you to really get how she feels. And very few people in this world really get how she feels because it takes so much investment to get to know her. And if you will really get to know her and try to understand how she feels, and if you will make sure that before you try running for the end zone, you've really got the ball, you're gonna become indispensable to her. And you'll be a best friend and not just a spouse. Okay, so moving, okay, good. I'm glad that was helpful. The Bible says, the wise are known for their understanding. Everybody has people get up at their funeral and give these great eulogies. Uh, and, and hopefully people will have some nice things to say about me at my funeral. The thing that I would do anything to make sure is feasible is that someday Wendy can get up and say, you know, the one thing about Jonathan is he understood me. That would be the highest achievement that I could accomplish as a husband. Okay, so let's move on. Number four. Wow, I am almost out of time. Number four. Say more by saying less. Say more by saying less. This is a biblical principle. Check this out. Proverbs 10, too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible and keep your mouth shut. How's that for straight talk? Right? Too much talk leads to sin. And then check this out. The words of the godly are like sterling silver. So what's sterling silver? It's precious and it's rare. The heart of a fool is worthless. Well, let's explore this for a minute, shall we? The Bible's talking about how precious and valuable the, the words of a godly person are. I want to show you this. I bought these on an on a online uh, store for this talk, uh, and it costs just under $10. And what's in this, you probably won't be able to see it, but what's in here, there's roughly 1,000 fake 
diamonds, and these are some big ones, really, really big diamonds, but they're, they're fake, they're plastic, right? Um, so they're worth about a penny a piece, right? Um, my wife has a diamond, a real diamond on her wedding ring. The one that was originally on there was microscopic. You really needed some very high-powered equipment to see the original diamond. I was 21 when I bought it for her and had no wherewithal. Years later, I bought her one that was slightly larger, but you'd still need a magnifying glass. I mean, it's better. It's not microscopic, but it's still not exactly huge. But if I tried to trade my wife, if I went to her and said, look, these are bigger and there's so many more of them, and I say, why don't you trade me the, the ring that you have, the diamond on the ring that you have for all of these, what do you think she's going to say? What are you, crazy? No, I'm not going to do that. She, she understands that the one diamond that she has is more valuable than if she had a million of these. When it comes to opinions in our culture, what we have is an abundance of very cheap talk. We have an abundance of words, very cheap words, but they're not very valuable. And as a matter of fact, if you think about it, why, why was I able to get a thousand of these for $10? It's because there's tons of this stuff. And you know what? If we ran out, we could make more. We got tons of plastic, right? So we got no, we, we can have as much of this as we want. On the other hand, the reason that Wendy's diamond costs some money is that, you know, because of the way the diamond market is controlled, diamonds aren't easy to come by. There is not an abundance of diamonds. There is a finite supply of it. Now here's the deal, when we, when we say say more by saying less, I'm, an, I'm uh, an extrovert, I'm a talkative person, that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about whether or not our opinions are hard to come by, or they are so easy to come by, and they are so many that they become cheap. This is what's happened to us on social media. Do you think, do you think Facebook is a reading platform or do you think it's a writing platform? For most people, it's a writing platform. It's a place that we think we have where we can share our opinions with the world. And as a result, opinions that were already cheap have gotten cheaper even still. I don't wanna be that person. I wanna be a person that says more by saying less. Let me tell you, one of my heroes in life is Billy Poor. He's the executive pastor of this church. I've known him since I was you know, a teenager. I've never had him give me his opinion unsolicited. He's never, that I can remember, given me an opinion that I didn't ask for. And as a matter of fact, there have been some times where I felt like I had to pull an opinion out of him. Seriously, no, though, really, what do you think? Because he's a man of few words. But when he gives you that opinion, it's like that diamond that you go, see, this is, this is why I came to him. This is why I asked him this question. It's because it's really valuable. Can I tell you that whether we're talking about your marriage or at work or your community, if you want to make your opinion be valuable, say more by saying less. And one of the things about saying less is it will refine the opinions that you do have. Remember what we said, stop talking and listen? Part of being willing to sort of shut the spigot of opinion off long enough to really develop what we think and what we know is when we are asked to give an opinion, it will actually mean something. Okay, number five. Number five is soften your message. Some of us really struggle with this. Check out this verse. As the beating of cream yields butter, and as striking the nose causes bleeding, so stirring up anger causes quarrels. 
Okay, so this is something that we know from a researcher named Dr. John Gottman who did this longitudinal research of, of what makes marriages work or not work. As a matter of fact, he was able to predict from his research within 94% accuracy which marriages would stay together and which would get divorced. Um, and he talks about something called harsh startup. And he says what harsh startup is, is you have a, a, a neutral situation, a, a, a neutral conversation. It's not either highly positive or highly negative, but suddenly one person takes it in an aggressively negative place. Now, the negative part is not the problem. There's always going to be times when we need to say something that's you know, we have an issue, we have a complaint, we have a gripe, we need to talk about something that we don't like in the relationship. Or, I mean, that's going to happen. That's not the problem. The problem is the harshness, the aggressiveness with which we start that out. And suddenly we have a, let me tell you what the problem is. Just as if I were to punch somebody in the face or in the gut, the very first thing they would do is they would take a defensive stance with me. That's exactly what happens in a conversation. If I go aggressively harsh with somebody out of the gate, the first thing they're gonna do is they're gonna defend themselves and suddenly we're gonna be in an argument and nothing, nobody's gonna win, right? So one of the things we need to do is just soften it up a little bit. And this can be word choice or tone of voice, anything that we can do to soften it. The Bible says, if you have a hard-headed person that you're dealing with, a gentle word might actually make it through. Some of you have hard-headed spouses. My wife does, right? Sometimes it takes a gentle word to get through to a hard-headed person. The Bible says a gentle answer will calm a person's anger, but an unkind answer will just do what? Cause more anger. Now, a person's anger is their responsibility before God. You're not responsible for whether or not they're angry. But the Bible says that the, the hardness or the gentleness of the way that you approach them can actually impact that. Number six, speak the truth lovingly. I didn't even have this in my original list. I, I had a list of six that I was gonna go through. But when I was preparing for this talk, I actually went through the entire book of Proverbs and I coded it for areas that talked about communication and I just could not in good conscience skip this because it kept coming up. That over and over again in the book of Proverbs, the message is tell the truth, tell the truth, tell the truth, tell the truth, a foolish person lies, a wise person tells the truth. And it hit me how often I deal with this with couples in my office. And what will happen is we'll eventually, after we've dealt with conflict for a while, we start to want to avoid it, where we become afraid of conflict because we don't know what to do with it. And as a result, we want to avoid it. And part of how we avoid it is we sort of shade the truth a little bit to sort of keep from having our spouse get upset. I would tell them exactly how it went down, but I don't want them to get mad at me. You know, I would say that I, you know, I forgot to get milk on the way home, but instead I told them that they were out of milk at the grocery store because now they won't get mad at me. At least I did what I was supposed to do. And it even is, you know, I'm going to you know, go to an even more sensitive place. Some of y'all are not going to like me very much after this, but it even goes to an even more sensitive place. When your spouse says, is everything okay? I'm fine. I'm fine. Right? Everything's Okay. And it's not, and by the way, this is not along gender lines. It just looks a little different, right? Ladies just won't make eye contact with you. I'm fine, right? Now, for a lady, eye contact is her way of connecting with human beings. If she says, I'm fine, doesn't make eye contact with you, you got a problem, my friend, right? Guys, on the other hand, right, they sort of create a wall with their body. And they're sort of, all their trapezius muscles get all tensed up, you know, just tell me what you want me to do, I'll do it. Just tell me what's the problem, I'll do it, right? It's a lie, isn't it? It's not really the truth. And every time we do that, we're chipping away at our spouse's ability to trust that we are actually telling them the truth. Now, on the other hand, there's some people that they speak the truth, but their problem is speaking the truth lovingly. 
right? Again, this is sort of tying into what we just talked about. They're, they're too harsh with it. It's, it's just, it's like they, they treat the truth as, as, a, as a, a, a battering tool to, to beat the other person up with. And that's not okay either. The scripture says this, the wise are known for their understanding and instruction or straight talk is appreciated if it's well presented. When y'all go to lunch after this uh, message, whether you go to a place that on the Google search has the little $1 sign after the name, or if you go to a place that on the Google search has $4 signs after the name, probably either place is gonna be serving beef, pork, and chicken, right? Same proteins. What's the difference between the place with the $1 sign and the $4 sign? That's how it's prepared, isn't it? That's how it's seasoned. And here's what I'm telling you. The, the, the protein may not change. You may have the same message to deliver. The truth is the truth. But how you prepare it, well, that does matter, doesn't it? All right, this is the last thing, which is good because I'm already in overtime. Number seven, stay humble. This one will never fail you. If you do this, you will always be okay. If you can be humble, you will snatch victory from the jaws of defeat every single time. Here's what the scripture says about this. And this is a verse that should be so near and dear to us. It's almost like my friend Les Parrott says you should tattoo this on your brain's cortex. And this is one of those that's absolutely, that's the way it is. Proverbs 15, uh, 33 says, before honor comes humility. If you want to be honored in this relationship, then you've got to work to be humble. And by the way, this isn't just a Proverbs thing. Jesus taught this, didn't he? But if we want to be elevated, we have to humble ourselves. As a matter of fact, that's what as a country we need to do right now. If we want God to honor our country and help us out in this moment, the first thing that we need to do is to find a way to uh, engage in a heart of humility with where we are, right? So staying humble. And I'll tell you why I think this, is, this matters. I, I, um, when, when our girls were really little, years ago, we'd be driving in the car somewhere. You know how siblings will get into little tiffs with each other. Nothing serious, but they just get in a little argument and they'd be going back and forth, back and forth. And you just hear the noise in the back seat. And Wendy and I would realize that they would be talking about something that they didn't understand. They'd be talking about something that was getting ready to happen or whether or not, you know, Wendy and I were going to do this or do that or whatever. And they'd be in this, this heated argument and Wendy and I would look at each other and kind of roll our eyes because we knew if they knew everything there was to know about what they were arguing about, they wouldn't be arguing about it in the first place. Their argument was really not, there was no sense to it because they didn't really understand the whole thing they were arguing about in the first place. Sometimes I think that our Heavenly Father looks back from the front seat at us married couples in the back seat and thinks, if y'all just knew everything there was to know about the things that you're arguing about, you wouldn't be arguing in the first place. Humility says, I don't know everything there is to know about this. I don't know everything about my wife. I've been married to my wife for 18 years. I don't understand her, right? I barely scratched the surface. I, it is my privilege to get to spend the next 50, 60 years of my life getting to understand her more, right? But God understands her completely. I, I don't understand everything about her completely. God understands everything about my life circumstance. I don't understand that completely. It's very easy for me to start thinking that I know everything about everything and getting into an argument with Wendy when really what I need to do is say, God, what is it that I need to learn? Teach me what I need to learn here because I just, I don't get it yet. I told the last two services, something that you probably heard from me before, which is that when Wendy and I first got married, we had terrible conflict. I mean, it started on our honeymoon, and we had, for the first three years of our marriage, we just had terrible, terrible conflict. Uh, so much so that I decided about that time that I was ready to file for divorce. I didn't want to be married anymore. And I didn't actually file, but I got, I got very close. Um, 
and I've talked about this in other messages, there was just through God's provision, there were some very important people in our life who helped turn that tide, and suddenly in a very short period of time, we had the great relationship that we have now, or at least we were on the track to that, and, uh, and now we have just this phenomenal marriage. I just love being married to this lady. She makes my life wonderful every day. That's not her responsibility. God has not called her to make my life wonderful, but she does anyway. But here's what I want you to think about. Because the only reason that I was ready to call it quits is we couldn't get along. Thought this is just never gonna be better. And some of you are in this place. You're thinking to yourself, we're just never really gonna get along. But I wanna tell you, if I'd given into that and thought we'll never fix this, I would have lost the best part of my life so far. We've gotten to raise two beautiful girls together. We get to work together in ministry, working with couples together. And I can't imagine what my life would be like if Wendy wasn't in it. And I I hate to think about how Satan could have ruined some of the best days of my life if I just bought into the lie that this can't get any better. It can, and I'm telling you from the other side. I've been to the other side and I can tell you it absolutely can get better. Start with these things. Make sure that you're trying to catch the ball before you run with it. Make sure you look for that common ground. If you want to work more on that, I have a free ebook that's on nothing other than how to find common ground with your spouse. But work on this and trust God. It can turn around. Don't give up your future just because you're struggling a little bit. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your love. Thank you for the fact that you can help us through difficult times. I pray that you would just give us wisdom and an open mind and open heart to be your hands and feet in our relationships, to show your love. Help us to live out that love every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for being here this weekend. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.